Hello, and welcome to the Orthopod. My name is Liam Fernando Canavan. I'm a medical student at the University of Melbourne, and this is a podcast where I'll take a history from experts in orthopaedic and musculoskeletal medicine. Chad Everard is a former registered operating theatre nurse with a passion for orthopaedic surgical procedures spanning over a 25-year career. After beginning in the operating theatres at St John of God's Subiaco Hospital in Perth, Chad progressed to working for Dupuis Orthopaedics, firstly in Perth and then in Melbourne, for a combined 13 years. Chad's significant experience in medical technology continued to grow when he began working for Medacta International to set up their direct business operations in Victoria and Tasmania, and then further expanding to Western Australia. Then, in 2018, Chad began his biggest challenge by forming reconnaissance orthopaedics and specialising full-time in more challenging surgical cases where his passion lies. Welcome to the Orthopod, Chad. Liam, thank you very much for having me. I did a bit of research and looking at the calibre of guests that you've had on this show before me, I feel lucky to be here, so I'm excited. Oh, I'm very happy to have you on as well. I think this is going to be one of the best episodes that we put together. (laughs) Pressure. Okay, let's do it. So those who know you know that you're an incredibly talented artist, as can be seen on the Reconnaissance Orthopedics Instagram page at archon.co. I'll make sure to link that in the description below. So through your love of art, you also have a keen interest in comic book heroes, such as those from Marvel and DC. However, I'd like to hear about your favorite superhero, your mum. Tell me about her journey from Burma to Perth and the importance of family to you. All right. That's a lot to unpack there. But I do have to correct you, though. It wasn't my love of art that then gave me the keen interest in comic book heroes. It was the reverse. It was my keen interest in comic book heroes that developed my love of art. And through growing up, I had really three toys through my childhood. One was pen and paper. The other one was Lego. And the other one was origami. That was it. So after seeing Superman as being my first movie that my mum took me to, I was obsessed. So I had to draw Superman in all sorts of flying poses, picking up cars and so on. Going to the library and opening books of origami and then folding paper and making toys out of that. Or just literally just building Lego because we just had a big Tupperware container of Lego. And just really just creating, you know, whatever it be, a car or a building or whatever. That, 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 was, that were my main three toys. But um, in saying that... Through the importance of family and what does my mum mean to me? Well, I was raised by my mum. She was a single parent. Uh, I think my dad loosely floated in and out through my gestation period and then was completely gone out of the picture when I was three. So from that point on, it was always mum and myself. And she definitely uh, sacrificed a lot to, to make sure that my upbringing felt like two parents when it was just her. And from that, my sister was born through another relationship that my mum had had and I was 11 at the time. And unfortunately, my sister was born special needs. And so in that time, mum and I had to step up and you know, care for my sister around the clock. She's fully dependent you know, from that point. We didn't actually know what was going on. At 11, I definitely didn't have any medical experience and mum wasn't from a medical background. Um, so we, we learnt as we went and um, as Madison's disabilities became obvious to us as she grew, we just adapted and just together helped kind of you know, make sure that she had a good life as well and, and, and still to this day has quality of life. You know, she's 34 now, she still needs to be in nappies, uh, be fed, changed, clothed, medicated, entertained, um, supported and so on. So mum's been there through thick and thin for both myself and my sister. And having that role model throughout my life has obviously not only inspired me to be better, but also 
taught me a responsibility, work ethic, empathy, uh, all these things that I guess at the time I didn't know I was acquiring. But uh, now I look back and I'm forever grateful that that was my upbringing and that my mum was you know, my guide through that process. Yeah, it's a beautiful story. And is, is it why you got interested in nursing? Funnily enough, I didn't know what I was going to do. Going through high school, you know, you come year 10, the career guidance counsellor comes in and says, right, now you've got to think about what you're going to do for the rest of your life. And I didn't quite know the answer to that. Uh, my auntie was a nurse and given from 11, caring for my sister, I'd probably naturally, you know, sort of was uh, engaging in a lot of those activities, looking after my sister. And then mum really sold the versatility of nursing to me, saying, look, you know, you can get into the emergency room, you can get into the, the ward nursing, you can, you know, you can be in the Royal Flying Doctors. And, and, and then one of the selling aspects she said to me, she goes, and even if you get sick of nursing, flight attendants, if you're a nurse, they, they pick you, you'll be highly employed because <laughs> if someone was to have a heart attack on the plane, you're there. So I went, okay, I'll do nursing and then um, signed up for that. And then I had to obviously get the, what we called in, in Western Australia, the TEE score, tertiary entrance exam. And, you know, was, was a, you know, scored enough to get into that. And then I just, you know, I didn't even look left and right as to what other options were there. Once, you know, my mum and I had had a chat and nursing was it, I just went for that. And you've, as we said in the intro, you've got quite a bit of experience in the operating theatre. So what was it about nursing that drew you to the operating theatre? <laughs> I'll say the short version of the story is I quickly discovered that I have a fear of vomit. <laughs> So, so I avoided every scenario where a patient was going to be sick. And I didn't know that the operating theatre existed, but I did know my phobia did. And um, I managed to escape all of those scenarios, but still pass my um, core competencies. And the operating theatre was not a site where students at that time got exposed to. It was just some late transition towards the last semester of my course that they said okay, we'll send certain students to the operating theatre. And so they sent me to St. John of God in Subiaco in Western Australia. And as soon as I got into the operating theatre, I had a lovely preceptor. She just took me under a wing and made sure that I scrubbed up for every different specialty. Uh, she had a, a really nice mix of, uh, of surgeons that she worked with. So I got a, a really eclectic mix as well as what different surgical specialties there were. And the surgeons there were super lovely. They involved me straight away. And I just think they were... I think they took me under their wing because I was probably the first male nurse that they'd seen come through their doors. There wasn't male nursing wasn't well, a male in nursing was kind of rare, and, and even in in my university degree, I think I was one of five males in a probably a hundred strong course. So they really kind of invested their time, and I just flourished in that environment. And and when I left and went back to the to, to finish off the rest of my university, I just kept thinking about that operating theatre environment. And from then, I was inspired. So it was sucked in straight out of, out of, it was actually university that, or once you finished your degree, you went straight into the operating theatre. Yeah, so I, I, my love for the operating theatre happened while I was at uni and only through that exposure. It wasn't yeah. through a TV show. It wasn't through, you know, maybe knowing uh, someone that was already in that workspace. It was literally that interaction that I had with my preceptor, with the hospital and with the surgeons that worked with me or allowed me to work with them, sorry, at that time that had a profound effect on me. And then yeah. I actually got given a job at a public hospital to work in the medical ward. And that was basically given to me through my training. And they, they'd said, you can start pretty much, you know, next year. 
And at the same time, I was flicking through the, the local newspaper and there was an ad for a position as an operating theatre nurse at that hospital, St. John of God Subiaco. And so I wrote them a letter, sent them my CV, and it was to the clinical nurse educator that I'd met briefly during my time when I was at, at that uh, rotation and then applied for the job. And then she wrote back and she said, Chad, um, we don't actually have a graduate program for uh, nurses straight out of uni to come through. But she said, you never know your luck. When you finish your degree, come and knock on my door and let's have a chat. And so when I finished my degree, I ignored the job offer that was given to me. And I made the appointment to see that clinical nurse educator. And we just had a long conversation. I think she just picked up on my passion for wanting to really immerse myself into that environment and work specifically for that operating theatre in that hospital. And I got the job. It's a great story. It's, and it's, it's interesting that you've discovered an interest in the theatre through your studies, just like a lot of medical students, uh, you know, my, myself included, do as well. And often we spend time in the operating theatre and there's all these people in there. And for anyone that's had surgery as well, they, you, it's not just a surgeon. There's all these different types of people in there. And nursing in particular, as um, you alluded to before, you can work on the wards, you can work in the emergency department, or you can work in the operating theatre. And then within the operating theatre... There's anaesthetic nurses who receive the patient into the operating theatre and start establishing a bit of rapport with the patient by asking questions and checking the identification and making sure that consent is given. Um, And of course, anaesthetic nurses also have to do extra training to develop their knowledge of airway anatomy and physiology, airway management strategies and anaesthetic complications to support the anaesthetic doctor. And then there's the circulating nurse, which people in the hospital would probably refer to usually as the scout nurse which is a non-sterile member of the surgical team who coordinates the activities in the operating theatre. And then lastly, there's the scrub nurse, otherwise known as the instrument nurse. So what can you tell me about the scrub nurse? The scrub nurse and the scout nurse, their roles are interchangeable. So there's two of them and they both know how to run the list that the surgeon has for that day. And that list being a list of patients that have a variety of different needs to have surgery. They have problems that they need to that need to be fixed. And so the, the, both the scrub nurse and the scout nurse, one will scrub for the first case and the other one will scout. And the second case, they'll swap and they'll basically give each other uh, breaks in that sense. And so the two of them together will look at the list. They'll arrive earlier than the surgeon and the patient and they'll look at the list and they'll plan all of the resources for that day, every single surgery, because we don't want people running in and out of the operating theatre, opening doors and letting contaminated air into the operating theatre because we don't want to breach the sterile field. So the more that the scrub and the scout nurse can prepare for the day means that there's less traffic flow throughout the operation. Patient advocacy for, the, uh, for both scrub and scout. And then as the scout nurse has done their job, the scrub nurse obviously washes their hands, gets uh, into their sterile gown gloves and then they open the the scout nurse will open the trays and the scrub nurse will take those trays in a sterile manner and put them on the sterile trolleys and organize those instruments from soup to nuts from go to woe of what the surgeon's going to do from the initial scalpel to make the skin incision to all the retractors to all of the tissue graspers to then also the, the more specialized instruments that actually fix the problem that the patient has And then they will remain after the operation has been done to do the closure of the patient and then the wounds and then to get that patient safely off the operating table back onto their their bed that then transports them out of the operating theatre to the recovery room where there's the recovery nurse. 
That's incredible. That's great. I mean, I we, we were talking a bit about this, uh, you know, off the podcast because you did express that you'd had not done that sort of work for a number of years. But you know, as a medical student, I haven't spent as much time in the operating theatre. You know, I see the the scout nurse and the scrub nurse interchange, and I've I've never really sort of realised that that's you know part of the role or, or how it all works. So it's it's really interesting to to hear more about how that that works. And in addition to the nursing staff and operating theatre technicians, surgical procedures require the use of specialised medical technology, such as joint replacements, the scalpels, the the scissors, all this other equipment. And when we talk about in orthopaedics, classically, you know, joint replacements, often there'll be a representative from the company. And that's something that you've got quite a familiar experience with, so the role of a rep. Um, can you tell me a bit yeah. more about what that role is and how you became involved from that work after your nursing career? For sure. A lot of the instruments that you described before are actually hospital-owned instruments. So your Gillies forceps, you know, your, your, your scissors, your retractors, your... Um, dissectors, all that sort of stuff. So nurses, theatre nurses, scrub scout nurses know those instruments back to front. That is what they've been trained in. They know the names, they know the purpose of those instruments. And that is turned over by the hospital from its use to its sterilisation back to its reuse again. And different specialties, plastics have their own you know, specialised instruments that are in-house compared to orthopaedics, compared to ENT, general, gynae, neuro. And therefore you have scrub scout nurses that specialize in those different silos as well. Then you have instruments that get loaned in and they get loaned in from a med tech company. These are specialized instruments that med tech companies share nationally because they're expensive assets. We just can't have lots of them. They, they, they typically cost a lot of money, um, but they have specific purposes. And the medical device company will send that equipment in in line with the surgery that's been booked and then the nurses will open those instruments but they're not familiar with those specialized uh, tools and so therefore it requires a, a product representative or a company representative to just be there to answer questions facilitate the use of those instruments or sometimes those instruments need to be put together and built into a bigger instrument in order to then be put on the body to be used for its specific purpose so that, I guess, in a nutshell is what a representative does. They're there to clarify questions and to ensure that the instrument or the implant was to be used the way that it was intended to. So, yes, their, um, I guess, nickname, it's, they're called a rep. Um, I guess in, in, internally they're known as either a clinical specialist. So a clinical specialist purely supports surgical cases. Or they can be called a product specialist or a product representative and they're not only in support of surgical cases, but they're also responsible for expanding the business or the use of that product to more surgeons. And so not only both are advocates for their products, but one is there to actually grow the business. There's also, yeah, I guess in that sense, there, there are two types of reps. The clinical specialist does not sell. The product specialist does and there's, you know, we have, I mean, largely reps are seen to be working in the operating theatre to support surgical cases. But I think reps really have three settings in which they work. You know, definitely the office, definitely the OR uh, or the operating theatre, and obviously the appointment room. So in the office, it's a, it's a loose term for, for their home base. And if you're new to the world of, you know, medical devices or repping, you should be spending a lot of time in the office studying. And specifically joint replacement or arthroplasty, which is where I'm in, you need to know every size, dimension, option in your system. 
And you need to know what your portfolio of products has to offer to the surgeon. And you should be doing sawbone workshops or practices or mimicking the surgery to simulate so that if there was a question to arise mid-operation, you're actually of some use. Mm. When you say sawbone workshops, some of the medical students will be familiar because at our student conference, we've had a session where students got an opportunity to work with sawbones. Uh, Could you just elaborate on on just quickly what you mean by that? Yes, so a sawbone is a chalk bone of like let's say the lower limb it could be an upper limb but let's just pick the lower limb for this example so you'll get the the hip joint you'll get the femur the longest bone in the body the knee and the knee joint the tibia right down to the the ankle joint and then it's just a loose bone but then you can actually insert it into a thigh and calf model which gives it some structure and then it is bolted to the table to mimic a leg that is laying down flat or it can bend into full flexion. So you can put the knee or the the sawbone leg into different positions as you would in a total knee replacement and then you can actually use the instrumentation that is stored in your warehouse, those specialised tools, and you can actually do the operation in a dry bone scenario as opposed to in the operating theatre when it really matters when you're on a live patient. Yeah, so as a product specialist, you've practiced the surgery in a sense you know the process that the surgeon's going through as correct well. correct so not only do you have to know the process but you have to know the process when the process breaks down uh, so that should all be that reps time to study and to, to to be full bottle on all of those things in the office or in the warehouse uh, then in the operating theatre is where you get to apply that knowledge. And you, you must support the surgeon and support the efficiency, but you don't need to get too involved. In fact, the most important things for a rep is what you don't say. Just let the operation flow. And really, just when you're called to answer a question, you answer. Sometimes you can overdo it because you're full bottle with all this knowledge. You just want to show the team that you know what you're doing and that you're there. But I think the best way to do that is actually to let things happen and only come to um, you know add value when it's called upon and you've got this career where you've worked as I said in the introduction you've worked at Dupuy and Medacta International and now your own organization with reconnaissance tell tell me about all that how like how did you how did you become a rep I mean you you, you went to university you were inspired to be a nurse and to help people and obviously your role as a rep you're still able to fulfill that passion but how did you what what made you want to become a rep why, why did you do that and how did it come about? Funnily enough, I did not know the job existed. No one knows the job exists. Like when I try to explain my job to friends, they're like, huh, what, what, what do you mean? But you're not a doctor, but you're not a surgeon. I'm like, I know, but I'm in there. <laughs> Sometimes I have to speak and they listen. I, I don't know what happens, it just happens. Um, but uh, I am not a doctor. Uh, I am a nurse. I have, that, I have that bit of paper. I can say that at least, but I am invited and I, and, I, and I value that invite and I, and I don't take it for granted, but I'm invited to be there and to assist. But when I was spat out of university and I got my gig as a theatre nurse, you know, I was this newcomer and I just went wherever they told me to go. So I never went into orthopaedics because they never allowed me. They stuck me in general colorectal surgery, gynecology, urology, ENT, and really that was it, the safe kind of specialties. Because if you hand... I say this with great respect, but if you hand a general surgeon a pair of artery forceps, he'll just use it. You hand something that is wrong to an orthopedic surgeon, it's wrong. And he knows that you don't know what you're doing. You can do anything with an artery forceps in, in, in the bowel. And you can, kind of, you can learn and earn your stripes in, in that in more forgiving setting. In orthopedics, yeah, it doesn't suffer fools gladly. 
And so, and also it, it was a prestigious area in, in, in that private hospital. All of the senior nurses scrubbed for the orthopedic cases. And at best, I might do tea relief and I got to see an orthopedic theatre. And then when that nurse came back, I was out again. And then even more so, joint replacement was the prestigious of all. If you got to scrub for a joint replacement, you were a valued asset in that hospital. The surgeons valued you because you could actually make their day in theatre and that case work better. And so therefore, it was a prestigious title to have that you're an arthroplasty nurse so I never got that never got there they did get me into light orthopedics so the sort of sports med stuff the arthroscopies and the high turnover sort of cases the day cases and with my nursing or theater nursing experience I knew it was all about efficiency I had to get that patient out turn them over set up the next one quickly and my goal was to reduce that lag time between cases and so surgeons recognize me for that like okay he's an asset I, I, I want Chad I want to work with Chad today because he doesn't float around so that was where I did get noticed. And then se- secondly, there was a surgeon, very senior orthopod at the time, and he looked at me and, he, and um, I, I don't even know if I saw him, but he said, oh, that guy, he looks strong. I could use him in my joint cases because as he was aging, he was you know, uh, not as strong. For those that are him. listening in, Chad, is a, you were a bodybuilder? I did, yeah, I did lift my weights first when I was probably about... 11, 12 years old, yes. So, yeah, and it's Chad, sort of Chad's, stuck with me. Chad's a very strong, strapping individual. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I, yes. Well, it's hard. I mean, there's just well, audio. We, we don't do a video. We don't. <laughs> <laughs> As you were saying, you would, you, uh, an individual yes, noticed so you were quite strong. He noticed I was strong. So he spoke to the nurse manager and said, Can I have Chad in my operating theater? And the nurse manager was like, But he doesn't know joint replacement. And he said, Don't worry, I'll show him what I want him to do. And then sure, next thing I was in his theater and I was picking up the leg for the hip replacements. And I was, and then it got to the point where he would be putting a jig on, which is a combined set of specialized tools. You put it together, you put it on the bone and you have to pin it into place. And I just knew it, it was intuitive for me. I knew exactly where to pin it. I put the pins in the holes and he would mallet them in. And more and more through exposure, I became very comfortable with joint replacement even though I didn't know any of the principles or any of the steps it just it just seemed to make sense and I don't know whether that was a combination of playing with too much lego as a child but it really just kind of clicked for me and then uh, there was a rep in the theater obviously because I'm doing joint replacement and I think those reps they have bosses they spoke to their manager like hey there's this guy Chad he's a nurse but he's kind of it clicks for him arthroplasty and whether that was spoken about Anyway, it's a long story to say that that was kind of how I was first noticed. And I was at the gym training and there was a couple of orthopedic surgeons that trained there. And I'd been in their theater doing the sports med stuff, the, uh, the arthroscopy. And then one of these surgeons came to me and said, Chad, give me your phone. And I said, why? This is... And he said, um, there's a job going at uh, Dupuy. And he goes, I want to ring the, the state manager and tell him to give you an interview. And so he grabbed my phone and he's like, he rang St. John of God Hospital and he said, give me the phone number to Con Antonis, who was the state manager at the time for Dupuy. So then he got the number, he wrote it down and then he called him. It was a message bank, but he left the message saying, Con, there's this young guy, Chad. He's a nurse at St. John of God. He's worked in my operating theater list. Interview him. Bang, hang up. That was it. That was my, that was my in. So I got that and then <laughs> I went into the interview process and really just had to hustle. Like I got asked a whole lot of questions I knew, I knew answers that I needed to give to make it the right answer. And then I answered honestly where, I, where, where, I, where it needed to be. Can I? <laughs> that makes me sound terrible. But when he... <laughs> Basically, I it said... It makes you sound fantastic. No, it, I, I said things like, 
I will not let you down. I will be the hardest worker in the room. I will work. It doesn't matter what time, day, weekends, whatever. I will make this a success. I didn't know if I was going to be good. I didn't know if I was going to walk in there and just be completely overwhelmed. But I just said what needed to be said. And I just went for it. I had to back myself, even though I didn't know that if I knew I was going to succeed or not. And thankfully, that manager gave me a go. Wow, that's an incredible story. That's, uh, that's yeah. it. All started in the gym. <laughs> <laughs> it did start in the gym. Wow. Okay. No. Well, let's um maybe let that let that be a lesson to uh, others out there. You, know, you never know where where your opportunity is going to happen. It might not necessarily be in the theatre. It could be in the gym or in a cafe or at the footy or something. It's, uh, it's an incredible story. So your career has led to you. You know, from you just said before, you didn't know anything, and yep. you didn't know what to say. And now where you are in your career, you work with the most difficult and complex joint joint reconstructions, complex arthroplasty. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit more about what is complex arthroplasty and how it's different to a standard joint replacement? Yes. So complex arthroplasty is like an umbrella term and there's many different reasons why it would be complex. And a lot of the time it's because... At some point in time, the primary arthroplasty or the original surgery has failed somewhat. So primary joint replacement is your original or your initial hip replacement or knee replacement. The ends of the articulating surfaces or the bones that glide against one another because they're covered in cartilage, they've eventually worn themselves out, causing bone on bone, causing pain. We resurface those ends of the bone and we put in different components that glide a little nicer and take away that pain. That's your joint replacement, your primary. So your secondary or your revision joint replacement is because we have to take those components out and we're working with less bone. Those anatomical landmarks are now gone and we have to use other principles in order to restore the function of the joint, the biomechanics, and even just the to balance it so it's equal to the other side. So yeah, we're reconstructing the joint and we're in a, in a situation where there's less bone to work with. So that is in the case of a revision surgery. You might have complex arthroplasty in the case of trauma where a patient has fallen over and broken a part of their bone that can't be fixed with a nail or a plate. And therefore we need to use a, a, a complex mega prosthesis in order to restore the joint and actually give back the function. Um, it could be for tumour as well where unfortunately some patients do suffer from a a cancer in the bone and that needs to be resected and once again a mega prosthesis is used in order to replace that bone and allow that limb to function again and other times it can just be severe deformity deformity that then we need to correct the deformity using the joint replacement implants not only as resurfacing implants but as realigning implants so that the bone is then realigned in a way that it's more anatomical which then also brings back the function I guess in a nutshell, complex arthroplasty is a broad term that says that things are just not going to go from A to Z like the workbook or the surgical technique says. It's going to, you're going to have to think outside the box a little bit. Mm. But you've got this incredible story and you're the director of a company which is a specialist service that delivers solutions for orthopedic surgeons who perform complex arthroplasty, fracture management, deformity correction and limb salvage, which is the stuff with the sarcoma, the bone tumours. Yes. So what can you tell me about the solutions that Reconnaissance Orthopaedics offers? Yes. So first of all, it's um, why I formed Reconnaissance. So I've found a real passion for complex arthroplasty. Your primary joint replacement is a beautiful operation. It is quite commonplace. There's a lot more patients that need primary joint replacement. 
Uh, revisions don't come about very often, but they're always very challenging and you do have to think quite creatively. And I just wanted that to be my every day. So reconnaissance was the name that I founded because it is the renaissance of reconstruction. It is the rebirth, the revival, the revision, and that's what I'm passionate about. So the renaissance being the rebirth of that reconstruction, reconnaissance, but reconnaissance also stands for all the reconnaissance work I do in the background, all of the operations side, picking the kits, picking the implants, getting everything ready, preparing for the surgery so that on the day of theatre, everything goes well. And that is the reconnaissance work that I do in the back. So that, hence, that's the, the, the name and the meaning behind the name. And it's just really my passion for complex arthroplasty, thinking outside the box, problem solving, and largely becoming more involved in the case as a trusted advisor, because my day-to-day is surrounded by complex arthroplasty, and I have the pleasure of working with many surgeons that have that as their specialty that they offer to patients. And so I see a lot of different ways that surgeons do things, and I have to problem solve in and work with many different styles of surgery and many different styles of surgeons. And so I've acquired this, uh, this historic knowledge that allows me to add value to cases. And that for me was a big goal that I wanted to make that my everyday rather than everyday being repetitive. I wanted everyday to be different. And so that, I found that in revision surgery. And some of the products you offer, so we've got Mutars, which is a uh, well, I'll yeah, let so you explain what that is. And yes. then there's also the conformist total knee replacement. What those specifically, what, what can you tell me about those two products? I will, I will start by saying that you're asking a salesperson to talk about products. So there is going to be an element of <laughs> bias here. Your surgeon or your clinician or your doctor knows best. Um, MUTAS is an acronym. So Modular Universal Tumor and Revision System. MUTAS. It's German made. And it is precise. If your primary implant has failed, there are components that will add stability or compensate for bone loss at the next stage and the next stage. And then when all things fail and you start to get less and less bone, it converts to a mega prosthesis and a limb salvage system. So therefore we can save your limb and we are the last line of defense before amputation. What does mega prosthesis mean? So this is where we start to get into the heavy metal of orthopedics. So the more bone that is resected, that prosthesis can compensate for that bone loss almost to the point of a a total femur or a total humerus. So it's like a full bionic limb Mm. that has the ends of the prosthesis shaped like that native bone and then it bolts into your, your shin bone, your tibia or into your hip joint and it basically makes... It compensates for the bone that was resected. Mm. So, it's, so a, it's a functional thigh bone and correct. knee joint. Yes. And it plugs into the, 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 the shin bone and at the hip or Yes, or correct. So, it must articulate with the, the acetabulum or, or your hip socket. Yeah. And we usually put a metal component in there by reaming out all the cartilage or the sclerotic bone that has formed due to the process of arthritis. And we get to a bony bed that is bleeding. And then we impact an acetabular cup or a shell it's like, a, it's like an umbrella without the stick in the middle. It just sits in there. Yep. And sometimes we need screw fixation or not, but largely the coatings now are so advanced that the bone actually grows into it and it becomes part <laughs> of the body. Wow. And then we put a different, a smoother surface inside that shell, uh, whether it be plastic or polyethylene or, or a ceramic of some sort. And then that is the socket. And then the ball head of that from the hip joint sits inside that socket, allowing that kind of, that circumduction movement that the hip joint has and all of our 
ligaments and muscles act as stabilizers to keep that joint in. So you touched on dislocation there. I think if the, the surgeon's job is to definitely tension the joint correctly so you have mobility, but you also have stability. And if that patient keeps up with their physio, or as you said, he's a strapping strong lad, his muscles will keep that socket in place and he will feel the, the confidence in that joint. There's yes. also... Um, custom implants, which is what Conformis's product is, yes. the total knee replacement. Can you, what, what, what does that? What, yes. does, what does it mean that it's custom? How's it? How's it different to? Yes, Conformis is a three D printed, custom primary knee replacement. What that means is there's definitely a, a lot of different knee replacement designs in the marketplace, and they've been designed with a team of surgeons and an engineering team, and they work out what is best in terms of the design and the shape of the implant. And then they make an array of sizes. And that is the portfolio of that system. And then I guess that would be considered an off-the-shelf type of total knee replacement. Then we've got the custom knee replacement, which there is no sizes. There is no design. We shape match the patient's anatomy. And then we give that patient that specific design implant. So what that means is the patient goes through a CT scan, which allows us to see the bone morphology and the curves and all the, the uh, I guess, the topography of the knee uh, in, in 3D. And then we print an exact clone of that patient's knee. Yes, there might be bony defects here and there, but there's a software algorithm that has been refined and specialized over time, and it buffers out all of those defects, and it gives you a line of best curve. So it mimics the medial. So with your knee, you've got two condyles. You've got the medial condyle or the inside condyle and the lateral condyle being the outside. So it's a, it's a line of best fit for the, the shape and the curve of the medial side and then the lateral side because they're always different. Your knee has a difference between your medial and lateral condyle, and your knee is, has a different shape and, and, and curvature to my knee. And also the, the most important one is the groove in between those two condyles, the trochlear groove or the sulcus or the patella groove, where your kneecap glides as well. And so they take those three lines and then the shape of the knee and they build a clone. And they do the same with the tibia. They look at the resection level of your tibia or your shin bone where they're going to make the cut and they look at the top shape of what that outline looks like and they build the exact same shape of that tibia. So you don't, you don't get any overhang or underhang, which you can typically get when the sizes have been preset. So, you know, total knee replacement with off-the-shelf implants work really well. I'm not saying that they don't. That has been the gold standard. And back in the like 80s and 90s, the sizes of components were like four or five millimeters in between. And then over time with modern knee replacements, they become down to three millimeters and now two millimeters. So you can often get the patient's size right. And that's very important because if the size isn't right, the surgeon has to make compromises in order to get the right fit in order to restore the function of the knee. But you'll never really get the right shape. With a full custom knee, you get the right size, the exact size, and you get the right shape. And I guess the best analogy of that is, is you might be a 34 in your pants size, but it might not be the right shape. It won't feel as comfortable as your track pants. When you sit down, your ass crack might be showing out because it hasn't compensated for your, you know, your gluteal muscles or your thigh bulk or you know, however your unique shape is. That's your signature. That's your fingerprint. So having a custom not only respects your size, but your shape. And through that shape, you get comfort, you get performance. You get a tailored implant. You get a tailored implant. Correct. Beautifully said. 
<laughs> and you said this term, and I've heard this often, off the shelf. Yes. So you've got off the shelf and like conformist patient specific. So off the shelf, what, what exactly, is okay, it just I'm, sitting there on a shelf so somewhere yes. in the hospital? Is that what that means? So off the shelf is an in-house term. These implants have been designed, manufactured in their main manufacturing site. They are sterilized and they're boxed and they're transported to your local site. And they sit there in a warehouse in their brand and in their size range. And then when they're called upon for a surgery, they're then shipped via courier to go to the hospital to sit there so that when we finally do the cuts or do the surgery, we know the exact size of that patient because the instrument's have cut the patient to that size and then we open that box and it is a sterile implant that has been made in the factory but we open it on the day of surgery and implant it in the patient. It is not just a shelf that we open up in the corner of the room mm. and we just pull out an implant. It is just a, it's just an internal title. It's probably a bit cheeky because it does kind of sort of make things sound generic yeah. but it's not. They've been carefully designed with an expert design team for the purpose of restoring patients function yeah and then the patient specific is sort of the same but it's designed specifically for the patient that's going to be operated on and then go through the same process exactly that implant is not off the shelf at all it doesn't exist until that patient signs up for that surgery and then we scan the patient and then we 3d print it and all this off the shelf patient specific stuff like you said earlier that off the shelf stuff basically can be the same and you know it's now it's down to a two millimeter difference i mean if it's so good why do we need patient specific stuff it's a good question because you know the outcomes for total knee replacement with um, taking the pain away and the arthritis away is very good and largely total knee replacement patients are happy i guess when we when we when we really cluster all of the total knee replacement surgeons together and we talk about patient satisfaction It's so cliche now because it's said so often, but I'm going to say it again. It's commonly known that about 20% or one in five patients is dissatisfied with their total knee replacement. You know, the pain's gone, but they just can't do the things that they want to do or that they used to do before the arthritis took hold or their expectations of what they want to do post-surgery are not met. And for whatever reason that is, and sometimes it can be the design of the implant, it can be the limitations of the instrumentation, or it's just the fact that that patient's anatomy is quite unique. And then if you think about your, we're putting a very generic implant back in. What, what the custom knee does is it basically matches that patient's asymmetry. So it is a clone of your medial condyle, your lateral condyle, and your trochlear groove or your patella groove. And if we just resurface the ends of that patient's bone and we put the implant back in, we don't, we don't change any of the geometry of the knee. And by not changing any of, the, any, any of the geometry of the knee, all of those ligament structures, that soft tissue, we don't change that ligament isometry. So what, if you just imagine in simple terms, your knee replacement or your native knee is held together with lackey bands, right? And those lackey bands, some are thicker than others and some are more rigid than others. But those lackey bands over the course of your life have allowed you to move mobility, but it also has given you stability as well so you feel confident walking down the stairs up the stairs standing sitting using your knee playing sport those ligaments have basically stabilized your knee for your entire life that's the position that they know that they the position that they know the tension everything and it all works dynamically and it's a very complex you know relationship and then you go and cut out all of the ends of the bone and you put in a generic implant that is nothing like your native knee those ligaments 
They can be over-tensioned in some degrees of flexion and they can be under-tensioned in others. So over-tensioning can restrict movement or it can cause pain. And that, I guess that laxity can cause an instability, an unnatural sliding movement of the knee and the patients feel less confident in that knee. If you, the argument to use a custom knee is that we are replacing the ends of the bone the same way that your natural shape was. So therefore your ligaments are unchanged. You don't need to touch those ligaments. They're not stressed in some areas where they wouldn't normally be and they're not loose in others. So therefore the science behind it is that you just move like your natural unarthritic knee. So you just, it should feel the same. It should feel the same. I'm very interested to hear about the supply chain of how things get from, say, you said Mutaz is a German company. So how it gets from Germany to Australia, to you, to the surgeon, to the operating theatre, and then into the patient. So um, the way the supply chain works is that there is a a site, a warehouse. Uh, And in that warehouse, there's operation staff that um, pack the instruments and also organize the stock. And there's a lot of instrument trays and there's a lot of stock. And they don't know the purpose of those instruments or those implants. That's where the product specialists or the clinical specialists come in. They make sense of that. So we understand the needs of our surgeons and the lists of patients that are coming. And then we map out and we plan for those surgeries, that we'd have the right stock and we have the right instrument sets in the state to send to those hospitals. So it's a lot of communication back and forward between the rooms of the surgeon or the secretaries or the practice managers, and then obviously forward planning within the resources that exist in the state. If they don't exist in the state, then we go national. And because every site, there is a warehouse, and then uh, we can see through obviously you know SAP or whatever sort of um, stock management system you're using where our resources are and we pull them so that we're prepared for you know the week ahead or the fortnight ahead should something not exist and it be quite novel then it does exist in the head office being somewhere either national or majority of the time international um, and hopefully we've got enough notice within time from when we get the booking to when the surgery happens that we then liaise with our international partners and we get it sent in. And there's often deliveries that go back and forward a couple of times each week or fortnight because stock needs to be transferred out of one site to another to make sure that they keep up with the demands of the business. And, you know, we look at our historical data. We know that we're busier in certain months than others. Uh, we know that we have runs of things. We know that we have more common surgeries than others. So we keep more stock or more resources of those more common operations or variations of those common ones. And then for the things that are a little bit out of the blue or things that can catch you by surprise, we might have just less of that and we share that. And we make sure that we communicate with our surgeons that, look, your specialty does fall into an area that we don't have a lot of sets on. So if you were to book a patient, before you book, liaise with myself and I will make sure that I can service you on that day and I don't have conflict with New Zealand, say, or for Western Australia. And the surgeon's on board with, with partnering with us on those sorts of things. But then there are more common operations that, you know, you might get two days notice because the surgeon just knows that it lives there. And it only takes a couple of hours to check and pack an instrument set and send it to the theatre. And the theatres run 24-7 with sterilising instruments, so it's always sterile at the time of surgery. So the biggest job for you is keeping track of your inventory ahead of time and making sure. And, And in starting up your business, it's been probably a bit of a learning curve, but now you know the pattern and you know what equipment to have oh, yeah. in stock. When I started this business, I was getting kits in my garage. I had to ring Brisbane and say, send it to me. They sent it to my house, and then I would drive it to the hospital, check it in myself, 
And it was actually good because it allowed me to reinforce my learning every time through every step of that supply chain. And so when I got to the operating theater, when the surgeon looked at me and said, have you got everything here? I knew that I could answer him definitively that I had everything there because I was the person from every stage of the supply chain doing it. And then through that growth and that expansion, then warehouse came, ops team came, people there to help me. But thankfully, I've got a team that I've trained and facilitated these processes to make sure that they suit the way that I do the business. And the, and the way that I do business is the way that my customers operate. I am a product of my surgeons and my surgeons' needs and their style and, and their patients' needs is, is how I have formed my business. Mm, and just one thing, they came to your garage which is not sterile, and then they went to the operating theatre. But in between that process, obviously... You take that to the what they call the loan set area, so all the loans come in, and they check the instruments to make sure that they match the instrument checklist. Because if something's missing, you know, the hospital's onto it. They, they get, they, I get a phone call. So there's all these things. So, so everyone is cross-checking another person's work. And then when the loan sets are accurate and everyone's happy, it goes to the sterilization department and then they just sterilize it. They wrap it like it's a birthday present and then they send it to the <laughs> to the operating theater storage site, which then it's there ready for opening for the day of the case. So as I said earlier, it's the, the, the difference between the off-the-shelf implants that sit there in the hospital, the hospital own, as you said, versus the patient-specific implants or the, the loan equipment that you, you provide. They all get sterilized and they all sit in the hospital ready to go. It's yes. just that you're the one that organizes the, the loan or the patient-specific e- equipment, whereas the hospital will organize the, the forceps and the retractors yes. and so on. So the, I call them nursing instruments. So they're the, the instruments, and they're not nursing instruments, but they're the, they're the instruments that the nurses need no help with because they've trained on that. They're the experts in that. And then there's the loan instruments or the, the, the company specific or the implant specific instruments. Whether it's off the shelf or whether it's custom, it's, it's all sterile. So all this off the shelf, patient specific stuff, this is, this is what you do. This is what reconnaissance orthopedics is all about. But starting a business, you mentioned before, you know, you had stuff coming into your garage and all this like, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not something easy, you know, and you've, you didn't do a commerce degree, you did nursing. You know, yes. how, how did you do all this sort of stuff? How, how did you start a business, right? And we know that you like to, you know, take on a challenge. So obviously that sort of nature that's within you to, to be challenged and yes. put yourself into positions where you're out of your comfort zone Correct. You know, comes works for you. But tell me, what was it like starting a business and, and how did you do it? Have you got any advice for, for, you know, say if you could give yourself some advice, you know, go back in time, what would you tell yourself? Yeah, let's start philosophically. I would look at your past successes and the way that your environment treats you, that being the people that you work with and what people say about you when you're not in the room, your reputation, and then have a bit of self-belief. If all of those things are positive, then back yourself. But do it with a buffer. Know that there's some risks and protect yourself against that. So for me, that buffer was having some savings. It's risky to start a business. You don't earn a, I don't earn a cent unless a box is opened. You, you correctly said, I didn't study business. I didn't study commerce. But I do know how this industry works. And I do know what I need to do. And I'm a service person. And I serve the patient and I serve the sur- surgeon. And if I understand what the surgeon needs to do and what's wrong with the patient, I can 
I know how to fix it by the instruments and the implants and all the peripheral stuff that I can send to make that case run smoother and more effectively. So in that sense, I know that part of the business. I know nothing about business business. Without apology, I will, I will never know at all in that sense because my job is to be a trusted advisor in the operating theater and serve the surgeon. I pay people to keep all the other stuff in order, to do my tax and to do my bookkeeping. And so my bookkeeper as well, I just said, just tell me what to do. Just treat me like I'm an idiot because I am and just show me and guide me and make sure I don't do anything that's going to get me in trouble. And that's it. So starting a business is actually pretty easy if you've got a team of people that care about you and you trust them. The rest of the stuff, you just focus on what you're good at. I think from listening to you already, it's clear. It's one of the biggest things that is helping you establish a brand of reconnaissance is your work ethic. Yes. And is that something that you're aware of or is there anything that you've worked on to try and build your network? And, you know, you've worked with all these, these you know, international companies, Implant Cast and Conformus and so on. How have you helped? What, what, is there anything yeah. in, 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 that you've done it on well, top of just, you know, being a very charismatic, hardworking person to establish the brand of reconnaissance yes i i definitely think if you're working for a major and you're new to the industry you are safeguarded by the reputation of that company and probably the 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 the, the results of the implant and then you're the facilitator or the clinical support person that just acts as a resource to the surgeon and to the nursing team and to the patient ultimately to make sure that those cases go smoothly when you start working for a bit of a niche end of the market, which the surgeons don't know the brand, then you have to, <laughs> you should hopefully have some acquired knowledge and, and, a, and a good reputation in the marketplace. Your reputation amongst orthopedic surgeons or any surgeon in that matter takes years to build and seconds to lose. Right? One fault, and, you, and you need to know that because and that's why we study. And that's why we you know, constantly go back to our notes and we constantly deep dive into our kits and our implants and we make sure that we know our instruments back to front. Because when we are called upon, and we're not called upon often because the surgeons, they, they, know, they know what they're doing intraoperatively, but should that time come where there's something difficult and they say, Chad, what should I do here? What, what, what would you suggest here? Or what are my options here? And if you're like, stutter, stutter, you've lost your moment. You've got to know. That means you've got to be attentive to the case. You've got to know. You've got to preempt. You've almost got to predict. And you know what that surgeon's goals are. So the more that you invest time knowing what the, what the goal of the surgery is, what the outcome is, and you can visualize that, then you can work backwards step by step. Study that. That is your sole job. So just own it. And I guess that's been my reputation. I've just constantly made sure that I'm on top of everything. And nothing. I leave nothing to chance. I am a bit of a pain in the ass internally because I triple check everything, which means I'm constantly ringing backwards and forwards. I'm closing loops. I'm making sure that things are done. I'm ringing hospitals going, did you check that? Yes, you checked it. If I find that I, I, if I hear any fear or doubt in that person's voice, then I'm in the car and I'm driving to the hospital and I need to see it for myself because only then I'm going to be able to sleep at night, right? And often I've seen things that, you know, I, I saw a kit that was in the hospital ready for a surgery in two days' time. But it was in the back corner of the room. And I'm like, why is it in the back corner of the room? Because a label was printed incorrectly and it had the wrong surgery date. So that the, the loan people went, well, this is not needed. And I'm like, I picked up on that error because I rang and I, made, and I cross-checked everything. Those little things that you do, those one percenters that make the day of, in the theatre run better or without error, over time are what surgeons notice. And that, that's what builds your reputation. 
So you care about your work, you care about the outcome. You're not just there turning up, clocking on, clocking off. That's not what we do. I mean, this is surgery. And so I need to establish trust immediately that I know what I'm doing, that the implant will perform and that the patient's going to get a good outcome. And so those first few cases, surgeons would send me x-rays and I'd get an x-ray on my phone and he's like, can you help me with this? And so I started to draw them pictures. I'm like, because... I need to show them that I can see what they are wanting to do and that the implants can do that. So I would draw in picture A, the the current setting, the current scenario, the broken limb, the loose component, the tumor, whatever it is. And then I would draw the desired outcome after the surgery. And I visualized that. And then I drew the components and I drew all the the dimensions and the thicknesses and the lengths and the angles and everything all in there. So it's like a tech drawing, but but hand-drawn, free-drawn. And then I would take pictures of it and send it to them. And they're like, that looks amazing. And they're like, let's do it. And so I would get the booking. And then so that then caught on. And then more and more I do these cases. And now surgeons, they send me x-rays and they go, now it's, I mean, one surgeon sent me an x-ray and goes, Friday, that was it. (laughs) (laughs) So that that for me was a huge compliment because that surgeon trusts me enough to send me an x-ray. And he knows that from that x-ray, I will either call him if something's unclear and we'll have a discussion or I know exactly what to build, put together, and I'm doing all that back-of-house stuff, and it arrives on the day, and I meet him on Friday, and we do that case, and we do it well, because I've got his back. And so that, for me, was a big compliment. And then I'm getting to that stage now with my business, because everything is built differently for that patient or for that pathology, for that, for that particular patient, because it's quite bespoke. It's not like a primary knee replacement or a primary hip replacement where there are certain philosophies and there's certain steps and they're always the same steps there's always the same workflow in revisions it's very different so having someone that the surgeon can trust who's an expert and he's, he's got a lot of experience and a, and a long track record now in that is on side it's uh, hopefully and having pictures to reassure them i hope that takes a lot of stress out of the surgeons that i work with yeah the pictures are incredible and i'll as i said at the start be sure to put your instagram into the notes because you've got a talent for drawing and it's like it's incredible the stuff you do really without me sending like a salesman it's really cool stuff thank you thank you and you've you know i asked you about how did you establish the brand of reconnaissance orthopedics and clearly it's through your work ethic um, through your concern and care for not just what the surgeon wants but also for the patient's needs and all of that comes back to what we talked about at the start that you wanted to be a nurse your inspiration of your mom and your sister and wanting to care yes and we said that your mum was your favourite superhero, but other than her, lastly, yes. who is your favourite superhero and why? <laughs> All right, so it is Superman. It has always been, it's always been Superman. Um, it was the first movie my mum took me to see. It blew me away. I think I was, I was, I don't even know what, I was definitely under six, whether I was four or five, I don't know. I truly believed a man could fly. Like when watching that movie, I was I wanted to jump out of the theater, just you know, high five the air, fist bump the air, whatever. I was pumped. And Mum definitely encouraged it by sewing me. She's sewn me four Superman outfits through the course of my life. One as a child, three as an adult. <laughs> but um, and I wear them, and I wear them. <laughs> but. Um, only for Comic Cons, not for just to traipse up and down Chapel Street wearing my Superman outfit, getting a beer. Um, but um, 
Look, from his, and why, why does that character resonate with me? You know, from his humble beginnings, you know, he, he had to leave his planet Krypton because it was unstable, it, it exploded, and his family sacrificed him, sent him to Earth. He was picked up by, you know, in a farm by two farmers, Jonathan and Martha Kent, and they instilled him his, you know, his ethics and his moral compass and taught him right from wrong, and he knew the difference between good and bad and, and what to do. But not only that, taught him that humility, and, um, you know, he had all these powers, all these amazing things that he could do, but he was taught to contain that. And he, he is Superman, but he developed this alter ego as Clark Kent because as he started helping people and people loved and, and adored him, of course, you're going to create enemies in that sense. So to protect the people that he cared about, he created this very unassuming identity of Clark Kent, concealing all of his strength and all of his power and all of his abilities into this awkward, clumsy, vanilla, nondescript reporter, you know, who was there just to be front and center when any crime was happening to then turn into Superman to help. And he's got all these powers, but he doesn't want to fight. He just wants to help. And he's a symbol of hope. He sees the good in people and just wants to be an inspiration that everyone can step up and be a little better. And I like the fact that he's got the strength to juggle planets, but he can't even get Lois Lane, his girl. He's awkward around her and he fumbles and she's got him wrapped around his little finger. And, you know, so there's this kind of, you know, as much as he's all powerful, he's also very vulnerable. And I like that. So Superman has always resonated with me in that sense. It makes me want to be a better person. I love the fact that he's so super, but he's also so humble. And um, funny story, true story as well. Um, I actually, Christopher Reeve was definitely the iconic Superman for me. But through a friend, I got to meet this young man when he was 17, 18. And he came to Perth because he would come and visit my friend because they were kind of in a relationship. But then he and I got along really well. And so we'd always hang out and he would always come back. He came from, you know, the UK and Jersey and this and the other. He would come back and visit us in Perth. And every year it became less and less as his career was, was getting more and more. But then uh, we would always catch up. He came to my house once and, and we spent Christmas together and we just would we'd be one of those guys that you'd chat with and we'd just chat all night. And he's just such a, he's an awesome dude. Anyway, he then, through the expansion of his acting career, became Superman. So yes, it's Henry Cavill. And um, he knew that I was a fan of Superman. Because my Superman, as you can see, is sitting in my house. There's Superman figurines, paintings, everything all around my house. And he'd been to my house. So he's like, Chad, I've been cast as Superman. And this was the Man <laughs> no of Steel, way. right? So all of a sudden, you know, being obsessed since like four, five, six, him being my you know, most loved superhero, and then having a friend who became Superman. And so I flew to Sydney <laughs> And then on the, on the launch of Man of Steel, he introduced me to Zack Snyder and I was hanging out with him. I got to see what, what his life had turned into from being a starving actor. Basically, I was like buying him his drinks and whatever like that when he was 18 to now like this guy's out now taking me out to all the fancy restaurants and I'm in a black car with him driving around going to the underground <laughs> of the Ivy to get like in this special elevator so we can all hang out and stuff. It was awesome. So uh, that, that's a fun story. So it's, uh, I guess in full circle, Superman is my favorite superhero. And Henry Cavill gets to act Man of Steel, but you are the real Man of Steel. And thank you very much for telling us all about reconnaissance orthopedics and your story, Chad. Thank you so much. As I said before, I'll say it again. I feel very lucky to be here. And thank you for spending the time chatting to me. It's thank you awesome. very much. Thank you for listening to The Orthopod. 
You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by the handle at somagradgroup or on our website, somagradgroup.com. See you in the next episode.